0: Spinning in circles and talking to myself Spinning in circles and talking to myself
1: Welcome to A New Spin on Autism Answers with host and international speaker and performer Lynette Lewis Besides working on her doctorate in psychophysiology, Lynette has raised eight children, six adopted, and four of them falling somewhere on the autism spectrum. Laugh with her, cry with her, as she talks to both experts and parents, and takes you through the often confusing, sometimes frustrating, sometimes overwhelming, but always fascinating world of autism.
0: Hello and welcome. This is a new spin on autism answers i'm lynette louise your story teacher host otherwise known as the brain broad and today i'm so excited i'm so excited groupie time this is somebody i've always wanted to meet and at least i'm meeting him through the phone that's a start maybe someday we'll actually shake hands and get a hug so um so i'm thrilled oh don't laugh yet michael it's going to get funnier So, (laughs) so um i'm so thrilled but let me tell you a little bit about what's going on today Number one, you have to remember, always, 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 you have to remember to stay to the end of the show where I'm going to do stories from the road. And I'm going to take a personal story, something I've experienced either in my life uh, with my own family or my own self or the people that I work with all around the globe to uh, make the final point and make it all make sense. So you have to stay to the very end. I'm only having one guest today. I'm too excited about my guest. I'm not going to share the airtime. So instead of doing uh, a primary guest and a okay, 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 great guest giveaway, my guest is so great. He's giving away five of his books, so I'm so thrilled. He gets to be my main guest and my great guest and my great guest giveaway. So uh, before we get into it, I want to tell you that he's all about brain plasticity, which is a great thing because today's question we have to have a question that we answer don't we or it wouldn't really be answers so today's question is you know are you stuck with what you got is what you came out of the womb with what you have to have does that you know that's an old belief of a lot of people and you hear the word brain plasticity all the time and it's really funny because in our world we don't generalize our knowledge For many, 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 many years, we've known we can teach children things. That's why we created schools. That's why we say yes and no, when we don't want them to behave a certain way. So, clearly, we know their brain is changing, or we wouldn't have thought they could do that. We would have expected them to come out the womb and lay like that till they died. And yet, the words brain plasticity seem like a brand new idea. And people are like, wow, how is it possible? Does the brain change it? I thought you were stuck with what you got. So I'm already saying, yes, you can change your brain. But the great thing is the man that we're going to talk to can say it with such clarity. And how do I know that? Because when I was in school, when I was a child, I never went to science class. I had negative, negative integer interests in science. I thought it was ridiculous. I kept saying, why would I ever go to science class? It's not like I'm going to be a scientist. Jumped to many years later when I read a book called E equals MC squared, and it was the history of science related to E equals MC squared. And that's when I got turned on to science. Many years later, I'm trying to raise my kids out of autism. I'm trying to work through all this. I'm believing they can change. I read this book, and for the first time, I'm turned on to the idea that science is about the magic of our world, and then I read right after that a book called. I actually let me see. I want to make sure I say the exact title correctly because it's when I first heard of our guest. It's called *The Brain That Changes Itself*, and it was written by Norman Dodge, Dodge not um, not by our guest. But it talked about our guest. He went and he visited him, and he talked about how. Many changes were happening in the auditory processing of the children he was working with and my kids, remember, my kids are autistic, not talking, having lots of problems. So my ears started to really perk up. And then I saw him do what I'm going to start our questions with. I watched him online because now I've jumped into science and the world of the Internet and I get to catch up with everyone else and not learn all the crap that we used to believe when I was going to school, so maybe I had the right approach. So I see this talk with this wonderful elderly gentleman. Sorry, is that okay, Michael, that I called you an elderly gentleman?
1: Absolutely, I am elderly.
0: Okay, there. So (laughs) (laughs) he has to be because his creds are so big. The reason I'm introducing him this way is because his creds are so big, it would take me even longer, trust me, to read them. So I see him do this talk, and he does something that saves me in so many ways I can't tell you. I was just drowning in the lingo of science, trying to play catch-up, trying to do all these things, get these degrees, uh, be be respected so I could change my children so I could be the boss because nobody's listening to me. And I watch him talk, and he's talking about, we're going to jump in from this point forward, he's talking about the auditory processing, and he uses an example about a cleft palate, and it makes it so clear. And he's talking like... All of my uncles used to talk when we would go to the farm and sit around and talk about harvesting in that he was clear. And, he, and I felt like he should have suspenders and should, should snap them because he, he just had that friendly look. You know, if I was a little girl, I'd want to jump on his knee, but now I'm a grown woman, so it would be inappropriate. And so I watched him, and he said something that will make him forever my favorite scientist, and I want you to say it on the show today. He said what they were hearing is crap the greatest scientific jargon of all, stuff I could understand. It was just plain crap. Now, I'm sure there's an official word for that. But I like that this is a man who you can understand. So Dr. Michael Merzenich is our guest today. And I well, had to actually, I, uh, thank you. You're, he's a professor emeritus at the University of California, San Francisco, World Authority on Neuroscience, Brain Plasticity, co-founder of POSIT Science and Scientific Learning. Recently, he's released a new book called Softwired. It's about brain plasticity. I just got home from the road, so I've only been skimming it, but I'm already hooked. He's a great natural talker, you will understand, and you will be different because of it. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you for putting up with my long intro, but I am that excited to have you.
1: Well, and that, that was a long intro, and, and, uh, and, uh, I, and you did paint me as sort of a uh, being obligated to explain things to people in a, in a clear way, and uh, that's quite a burden, but we'll see what we can do. <laughs> we'll do the best well, we can.
0: I know you're going to pull it off, because if you can start with, so I mentioned the, the story of um, the cleft palate, and I, what I liked about that is it sort of paints a history of of how you can, or how they came to prove that things could change, and it's pretty clear, and I know you usually right. set that up for a long time in advance, but I think we can jump in there. What do you think?
1: Well, that's a great story, and because, you know, when I was a young scientist, a young man, and, you, and uh, maybe you're not as old as I am, but... You know, everyone believed that was commonly believed in the medical community that a child uh, born with a cleft palate was born with genetic uh, weakness that would leave them. Uh, the word we used in those days was retarded, that is to say, mm-hmm. cognitively impoverished. And we knew that, that, that such a child would never develop normal language abilities, that they'd struggle to learn to read, and we knew that they'd have all kinds of problems in life that we thought were attributed to their inheritance. And then about 35, 40 years ago, a surgeon in, in Europe discovered that if he corrected the cleft palate early enough, none of that happened. And now you, we hardly hear about a child with a cleft palate that suffers from, from serious problems or serious faults. And because if you, when you operate on a cleft palate early enough, you, 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 you deal with the real inherited problem, which is... Uh, a, a defect that occurs because of the cleft palate, the closure of the eustachian tube, which drains fluid from the middle ear from the from the from a central chamber. And when a child is born with a cleft palate and that and the ear is fluid filled, everything they hear is underwater. And because everything they hear is underwater, they develop language in a very abnormal way. The language they develop is not English. The language they, they become a master of, or Spanish, is underwater English, or underwater Spanish. It's muffled and degraded. And of course, they struggle to develop their language abilities in their brain. They're, 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 they're hearing everything in this abnormal way. And once, that's, once they practice that for two or three or four years, then when you collect the, correct the cleft palate, basically they're stuck with the brain, basically, unless you, you could systematically correct that. But it didn't occur to people that they could correct that. And it turns out, just by clarifying hearing in early in the earliest stage in life, the brain corrects itself, and of course develops normal language ability. And then none of these other things that were attributed to the cleft palate as an inherited condition occur. And so it's a beautiful example of how our misunderstanding of and in lack of appreciation of the fact that the brain is plastic can lead to uh, really a, t- a terrible set of consequences for the individual that suffers from the, the fault. And in fact. We can do a lot to correct problems in individuals that do have inherited conditions like this, almost always, because they have a brain that is plastic. That is to say, subject to correction and change at any point, later point in life.
0: Okay. Now, that, so, wasn't
1: very, that wasn't part- particularly clear, was it, Lynette? So it, no, was,
0: actually, it was <laughs> totally clear. You're so clear. You don't even know how. You're actually so easy to follow. You're wonderful. And here's, here's what you forgot, though. You forgot to say they're hearing crap it was like yeah, my that's favorite a, thing.
1: absolutely right. Well, they were <laughs> hearing crap <laughs> and they mastered it. They were masters right. of crap. And and of course and their brain was filled with it as a consequence. And it had, it and they suffered a, uh, they suffered terrible losses and were really set back because of it. And it could all have been clarified and is now clarified in every such child early in life and and so that none of these children have to endure that. Uh, so we we but the interesting thing is that all of these problems that the, occurred in the child basically arose in the child because their brain was specialized in hearing crap and right. and uh, and couldn 't correct itself on itself by its own by its own self in an easy way, and then the individual was stuck with that for life and okay, always so he, behind
0: yeah and so you you do another thing in one of your talks I think it was your TED talk maybe um, and you were talking about um, see I, I am a fan I'm sorry I'm a little groupie here I'm going to be able to quote everything you ever said No, Hi. So, you, so you can't leave crap out um, so, so you were talking you were using an example of how a brain can be sort of set up to specialize to explain that specialized sure. process and you were using sure. the ceiling fan um, example do you re- right. do you recall this
1: sure no, I mean the the brain of a child, a very young child, is basically all change, changes itself on the basis of its experiences and 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 if it as in the case of the cleft palate child, if the primary uh, information that it has to deal with that it's specializing around is crap, you know basically it's very it's going to be very degraded in its operations, and the same applies if a child happens to be born and 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 happens to spend most of its early life in a in a room with a ceiling fan, that has, a let's say, a tick in it. The brain doesn't know that that's not important information. And in fact, the brain will specialize, become a master at dealing with and being dominated by inputs that are meaningless to it. And, and so the, what occurs in the early life of the brain, and, and, and it's, it creates a mastery of the world into which it just happens to be born, very much depends upon the quality of information that it receives in that early period of life. And and if that quality is degraded and and if the brain is receiving lots of information that's meaningless, the uh, television uh, across the wall from where the baby's bed lies and where the baby is operating most of the time in its early life, and all it hears is that muffled English, of course it doesn't understand that that's not important information for it to resolve and to make sense of. And of course it can become dominated by that useless information.
0: It's so interesting. I think it's so interesting how that can be difficult for people to comprehend because it's a hidden skill, whereas if you say to them, it's that generalizing the information piece again. If you say to them, you know, if I take your arm and I tie it up and you never use it, the muscles will atrophy, your ability to do things will change. I think people recognize that because they see it, but they don't realize that as a correlated change in the brain. And so when right. it specializes, it grows a more representation, a more area for that, right?
1: Right. You want the brain, of course, to grow up under conditions in which it specializes to develop all kinds of clear, clear representations of the things of the world and clearly defined and mastered skills and abilities. And the brain is plastic and it, will massive, it is capable of massive specialization for the good. But of course that specialization could also lead it in a deteriorating or degrading or negative direction as well. And that's a very important thing for a parent and for uh, for every all of us to understand. Plus okay. just a two way two way street, you know, I can take I could train you in ways that degrade your ability to understand what I say. Just right. like I can train you and improve your abilities to understand what I say. You know, plasticity works in, 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 in it goes it moves, can move the brain in either direction and towards specialization.
0: Agreed. <laughs> I'm always saying it's either moving forward or it's moving back. Make sure you, you know, keep, keep it going in the direction you want it to.
1: Going so. forward is better.
0: Yes, much better. So here's a question. I raised, I don't know how much you know about me, but because you're probably not my groupie, but <laughs> I uh, raised eight kids, six were adopted, uh, five were disabled, four were autistic, and I got them at varying times in their life, and they all had stories. And so... Um, my, I'll give you the, the three siblings. They, they all had slightly different stories, but one thing they had for sure was nobody talking to them um, and then going into silence and then talking and encouraging and all of that. Instead, they were left in their cribs and had, you know, angry shouting in the background and all kinds of everything except that sort of teaching, organizing that happens that when you play with your little baby and you do all that stuff. They were often right. abandoned for long periods of time. They were in a noisy right. environment that was just full of, you know, crap and fighting and all kinds right. of things. Plus they had they had problems of their own. So um, let's say you start that way and then you end up diagnosed as autistic or, you know, learning. I, my one son right. at one point, they said auditory dyslexia. Will will now I have, they are now um, fully independent and, and uh, successful in life. So clearly the brain changes itself. But what I want to Please. do is apply this now to what used to happen back then, which was everybody would say, well, let's wait and see. Maybe it was the environment that caused it. Um, it was a long time before I really rolled up my sleeves and tried to make a difference there because we were always in the wait and see mode. So when you think right. of that story, what's your thought, and how would you apply yourself and, and your knowledge to a story like that?
1: Well, not too many years ago, the that predominant belief is that when the child showed up in whatever situation they, that was, they were expressed in them at the schoolhouse door, they were pretty much it was pretty much a uh, a done deal in the sense that they were they had their potential was defined by what you saw in front of you, and and of course we now know that that's absolutely not the case because we now know that the brain, in fact, is continuously plastic. And you may have to go back a ways in their fundamental abilities to regrow the kind of ability that would enable facile reading or enable success in school or in life, but it is recoverable because the brain is plastic. You know, you can change the brain for the better every day and and, and, and cumulatively over a period of years massively change it for the better. And that applies to virtually every child, no matter what their early struggles. And Lynette, one of the most frustrating things to me about it, about this is that, is that the average citizen of the world understands so little about this and little about this great human capacity we all have. And that's one of the reasons that I wrote this book, is to try to help people understand it. It frustrates me that so many children show up at the schoolhouse door with a lousy back history, no fault of their own, and, of course, as soon as they come to school, they realize that maybe school is not for them because, in effect, in, in a sense, they're neurologically wounded. But they're rescuable. And, you know, we can we can transform those children and give them positive, useful lives. Of course we can because their brain is plastic. And, in fact, we have the responsibility to, and what we do, in, in fact, to the contrary, let it often is we blame them for it. We blame them for their, the, the disadvantages that they have had in life. That is absolutely no fault of theirs, and we continue to blame them for the rest of their life if they if they live that life uncorrected. So okay. uh, you know, we we have to we have to help these children, and we have the power to help these children because, in fact, their brains are plastic.
0: Well, you you were part of the cochlear implant were you not did you not
1: one of the commercial cochlear implants came from from my lab one of the implants that is distributed in the world now there are three main uh, three main sort of scientific sources of them and one of those sources was my research laboratory at the university of california
0: so okay so when you have a cochlear implant does the brain then change to adapt in order to process that sound
1: it's a fabulous demonstration of plasticity in an adult brain lynette because basically the cochlear implant Uh, is is using pattern electrical stimulation in the inner ear. It's a very different form of of information than the normal form that comes from the ear to the brain. And and initially, of course, that that information is, uh, to use the word again, crap. It's not understandable generally in a patient because it's in a very different form. But the brain has the capacity because the brain is plastic to make sense of it again. And pretty soon the person hears everything, and pretty soon the person says that what they hear sounds just as good as it sounded when they heard everything, with information delivered to the brain in its original form. So it's a wonderful experiment of brain plasticity because you can deliver information to the brain in a very different form, and the brain has a beautiful capacity to understand basically what it it is receiving and to interpret it correctly, just as it did before.
0: Isn't that amazing? And so is that part of the basis for your Brain HQ? Or can you tell us a little? You're just so great. <laughs> okay, tell us a little about Brain HQ, and then I have to do the mid-break.
1: <laughs> well, Brain HQ is a, is, a, is, a, is a place that you can go on the web to train your brain, to train a brain for the better. And so one of, the, one of, the, one of my main goals in life has been to try to translate this science to help people that are struggling or to help people that could be better or stronger or to help people be more resilient against the vicissitudes that can occur in life or just to help people be more capable by training or engaging their brain to drive them to better to a better and better place so we've trained many many hundreds of thousands of individuals at brain hq and you can go to the site and see what that brain training is all about and what we're trying to do is to help people basically be more effective more powerful, more capable. Many people have suffered problems for, because of some aspect of, in the history from the, in their neurology. Uh, they had psychiatric problems or neurological problems. Many other people are just sensing that they're losing it as they get older and they're worried about their, 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 uh, their ultimate destination in older life. And we're just trying to help people basically maintain their brain in a good, fit, healthy state as long as possible because our brain is us, and and, uh, that's a really good idea to maintain your brain in good stead, and that's what Brain HQ is all about.
0: And it's what we're all afraid of as we age, and come around the corner, I'm heading on 60 here, and so I'm going, how's my memory, how's my memory? Of course, I use neurofeedback, I cheat, but, but still. Well, okay, look, so it's
1: justifiable in that because, you know, if we live long enough and, uh, you know, if you're 60 and you say, well, I'm going to live at least into my 80s, well, a simple fact is is that it, by the middle of your, eight, your, your ninth decade of life in your 80s, about half the people are, are formally identified as senile and demented.
0: Yep, and yep, when you and
1: think you have a 50-50 chance of that, you, it's a good idea to think about doing something so that that's not your fate why allow your brain to go south when you can go north you know that's my that's my uh, that's my advice work and on i love the, it and work, and i want to
0: work. quote your chapter title because it shows how again how you clear speak and again you're doing it now you're just talking in regular language we can all understand you how great is that right. unless we have a problem with our auditory system and then i'll have them come see you so <laughs> your right. title here right. is losing ground just by having a birthday and i right. love that <laughs> I love that. I mean, right away, your brain goes, oh, I know exactly where he's going to go with that. And, of course, we don't because you'll take it all kinds yeah. of places. But, but it is very true. My daughter just had a birthday she, yesterday, actually. She turned 39, and she's like, I've got to get to 40 so I can feel, you know, then I can feel young inside my decade again. Um, so a birthday <laughs> is very meaningful, isn't it?
1: It certainly is. And, and, but we don't have to slide so far and so fast. You know, we actually can work in ways in our in our brain health, just like we work in our physical health to maintain ourselves in better shape and better better stead of course. And that's what think, that's what that's what uh, training at, at places like Brain HQ are about, and that's what the book is about. Because there, you know, there are a lot of things that a person can do in everyday life, as well as go to the brain gym, that can help keep their brain in better better shape. And that's I'm trying to help people understand what their brain needs as, uh, as, as, in, as a regular medicine, you could say, to maintain itself in, in a fit state. If we all lived life in the best way from the point of view of the advantaging our brain, we wouldn't have to worry, worry about going to a brain gym like BrainHQ.
0: True enough, and maybe reading the book could get people doing that already. All right, so I have to give the little mid-break. You are listening to a new spin on Autism Answers. I'm Lynette Louise, your story teacher host, otherwise known as the Brain Broad. We're having a wonderful day. We're only going to have one guest today because our great, great guest is also our great guest giveaway. We're speaking with uh, Dr. Michael Merzenich. He's a Ph.D., Chief Science Officer of Posit Science, writer of a brand-new awesome book that we are going to be giving away called Soft Wired. He's been so great, he sent me five. So I have five, well, I think I'm going to keep one. So I have four books. <laughs> I have four books to offer up. Fair, I'm keeping Lynette. that one, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so you know the the drill, guys. You send me an email in the subject line. So my email is Lynette at com. Subject line says, Soft Wired, and the first uh, four, because I'm keeping one, the first four people are going to get a copy of uh, Dr. Merzenich's new book, and I think you're going to have your life changed by it. There's a problem in the world today in that we've sort of, we're on the heels of always believing. in everything is attributable to psychology. We're kind of changing that, but we haven't really come over the mountain on that one yet. And when you understand your physiology affects your psychology and your psychology affects your physiology and your it, that there is no argument between nurture and nature, that it's all the same thing and they all blend into each other and become one, um, You change you change right from the reading and the learning of that bit of information. So this book is going to change your life in a positive and beautiful way in a very empowering way. Um, And mine, (laughs) because I have to read the rest of it. So um, I'm real excited that I'm going to be able to offer that up to you. Michael is sharing many wonderful things with us. As you know, this is a story show, so let's go to him now and ask him the story of his life that that brought him to science. Like, how did you end up? Turned on by science, did it happen when you were little. How did you become you?
1: Well, I grew up in a small town in oregon and uh, and sort of I grew up on the edge of town in the country. Uh, my father worked in a factory but uh, but in in, uh, in our in our place, we had uh, livestock and uh, we grew our vegetables and, uh, and canned fruit and did all the things that you would do in a sort of country life and I, I had a wonderful family that was very interested in issues of science and technology. I lived very near what my grandfather, who was an architect and an engineer, almost completely self-taught. And he had a strong influence on me because he was interested in how things how things uh, were constructed and how things worked and how things worked, worked in the world. And as a young kid, I was very interested not just in science, but in issues of philosophy and issues of of religion and philosophy that related to what life was all about, you know, what is, uh, what is, uh, what's it all about, Alfie, you know, yeah. and uh, about issues of consciousness and the self and the soul and all of these things that a it young person be. is uh, fascinated by. And I, I thought for a while of studying these in, in in psychology as a college student or studying them in philosophy, uh, and then it, it occurred to me at some point that Probably the best way to approach this was to study them in the brain. So I went to graduate school with the notion that I would study the brain as a machine that accounted for aspects of my humanity and at least understanding understand what, would, what it was contributing to my humanity. And basically, that's been a lifelong pursuit ever since. You know, I really most was most interested in why do we humans act the way we do? What's the origin of our behavior, why do, we, why do we respond in the way that we respond, know what really underlies our humanity as it's accounted for by the operations of our brain. And in a sense, the book, software is about that, and uh, it really represents the sort of sum of what I've learned as a scientist over these many years about our humanity and about what I am and how I can think about myself as a human being, or think about you as a human being, Lynette.
0: Well, because I'm so human, really. I'm just kidding. <laughs> of course you are. <laughs> well, how did it lead you down this, because this, you are very involved in the auditory piece of, um, you know, the brain. So, So how did you end up going down that part of the path?
1: Well I thought the auditory brain and the the language brain was especially interesting as a way to study the brain and as it related to these issues. I mean there's nothing more central to our humanity than the gift of language. And there's a, there's a great, you know, body of literature in in science that doesn't just describe the that doesn't just support, support relate to the science of the neurology of it but also to the behavior of it because our studies of language and all of its expressions and of listening and all of its expressions are, are are pretty profound as it relates to this this uh to the psychology or psychological or linguistic aspects of it so i thought it was a particularly appropriate target a particularly appropriate way to focus my interest in in studying the neurology of the brain as it related to uh, our humanity and it's proven to be so i mean it's a great it's been a great uh a great uh, strategy to, uh, and, and to to study these powerful systems that account for this tremendous human gift.
0: Um, no personal story like uh, my great-uncle Ed had a real problem hearing and was really annoying to the family, so I was like nothing like well, that. Well, we either. all
1: have those stories, Lynette. <laughs> of course we do. We all have an annoying Uncle Ed. Come
0: on. You know, sometimes <laughs> much, we have that that's cute That's pretty little...
1: much a universal. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's very cool. Oh, my gosh. Um So, all right, so you, you went down that pathway, and that clearly you've been super, super advantaged, and it's really important for my audience to right. think in terms of, because we are primarily an autism-related show and it 's got such a huge communication disorder and i 'm going to tell you something right. I have never right. met an autistic person who can 't speak um, it 's a huge statement and, and I meet a new autistic person a week so yeah. and I can go in and i can I sort of treat um, the way that I do my play therapy similar to becoming the the neurofeedback machine. You know I respond immediately to any sound, I shape that sound and I make sure it's, they're motivated in a game way, so a lot of the time I have the kids stay on my back riding and getting the word ride, but they can already say it, just nobody's listening to it. And they've sort of learned to say it inside the noise of their own heads. So um, I'd like to know if you've applied any of this to autism or if you if you see um, a difference in relation to autism or if you've even been exposed to, to uh Using your techniques with, you know, with autism.
1: I've studied autistics and tried to understand aspects of autism as a research scientist because I'm very interested in this in this population and very interested in what happens in the in the early life of their brain that contributes to the expressions of the of their, you know, I wouldn't I don't, I'm not going to call them limitations. I would call them differences because their brain is operating in some ways with great powers in some ways, it, but. It is definitely operating in a different way. And autistic individuals, one of the first things I learned is, is that uh, even autistics that don't talk very much can understand an awfully lot. And in fact, if you can get, get to an understanding of what they understand, and in fact understand in terms of language, you know, it can be amazing. And, 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 and completely within the range or even above the range of normal. So, and often above the range of normal, I would say. So, uh it's it's one of the things that it's a little bit like for an individual that can't express the, themselves. It's you know I've likened it to being in a well where you you have lots to say and you have lots of feelings about things and lots of understanding of that, about things but no one can hear you say them. And, yeah, uh, I liken it to that a lot
0: too. Actually. Go yeah,
1: on. and if you can just release that, if you can just help them. In a way in which they can express what how they care about things and what they know about things, it can be amazing. So you know, it's something that I've tried to understand a lot. One of the ways that I've tried to apply our science to them is historically, um, I worked on the development of language training programs that were designed for children that were more mildly impaired in their oral language abilities. We created software that's called uh, that's called Fast Forward. Yes. Fast Forward training. Was designed to help children that are more mildly impaired but have language problems or language problems that are going to impede their reading ability and affect their sort of language fluency abilities and their memory for language and uh, One of the first things I did in this training program is I asked clinicians to to carefully apply it under in control conditions to autistic children and I might might say that in with respect to that that of course. Probably the majority of autistic children would struggle to initiate training in this form, but many could. And, and uh, pretty soon, uh, we had data back from hundreds of children, and I've actually published several reports about this, Lynette, in which we saw really marvelous advances in many of these children, which demonstrated that their brain was plastic and they had the capacity to make major progress in their language abilities. We saw children wow. that made enormous improvements of their language abilities and now had the gift, you could say, of oral speech, where it was very limited or very primitively expressed uh, at the outset.
0: Yeah, and, I got uh, to so, confess. I got to confess. I already knew about fast forward because I tried to get it for my son, but he's, he was so poorly speaking at the time I decided to circle back around later. Um, he was an adult right. before I started doing brain changing with him, and he's now engaged right. in talking, but he's still a very poor enunciator, yeah. so we'll, we'll see yeah. what we can do. I was hoping you could apply this idea. Okay, so a lot of the autistic kids, lots, right. have uh, issues with their eustachian tubes and have, um, right. like, allergies and lots of oozing, and there's a lot of the kids that get their tubes, uh, you know when they put the tube in to drain out the fluid and that and it's a pretty right. common situation for autistic kids when they're young but there's no follow-up it's sort of like let's drain that fluid and get that operating right. properly but there's no follow-up on what to do to help reorganize their processing of sound and this usually right. happens when they're young like you know maybe sometimes older but usually you know four or five six happening so what do you think about, how would you approach that to help these parents who are in that position, who their kids just maybe got those tubes and their kids are maybe hearing clearer? What, what would you say to that?
1: Well, if the child was capable of, of, of uh, operating in the game-like environment that's provided in, in fast-forward, in, in listening, and had language abilities that would support the initiation of it, it would be a very good thing to try. Because it what it's what it does is it 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 um it it steps back to a relatively easy level and in a in, in the sense of asking child to make distinctions in listening that are relatively simple and then drives them progressively, slowly, to make uh distinctions about what they hear in listening and their operations in language in a more and more natural way until ultimately they're a, they're able to operate in a, with a fast normal speech. And if a child can go through that progression, the changes can be dramatic. And, again, hundreds of thousands of children now have been trained that are in the autistic spectrum using this strategy to their benefit. Now, if the child is more impaired than this, then you have to think about starting in a more elemental way, still a more elemental way from the point of view of building their, their, listening, their listening capabilities. Actually, this is something that we've been working on here in, at Posit Science, and post-science, we've we've been working on training strategies experimentally in children, which are designed to carry the child back forward and, for, you could say, back for, uh, farther in time to even more elemental aspects of listening and language operations. And what we're doing is still experimental. Uh, and we're also working on trying to improve the child's attention control because attention control in initiating these early stages of listening behaviors are, is so important. and uh, But we're having interesting success, and, and we're trying to deliver this as fast as we can out to help children in need. And it's one of the main things that's on our agenda from of the point of view of the child research that we're, we've been conducting. I might say, Lynette, that we're also heavily focused on a second pillar of what these children struggle with, and that's their social cognition. Uh, and we're also trying to help relatively rapidly train them in ways that progressively refine their social cognition. So we have a major effort in that domain as well because that's commonly also in the way of their making making progress.
0: Okay, I can't keep asking you questions, but I'm going to ask you one more. Because <laughs> we're running out okay. of time. We're like out of time, but I'm going to use it anyway. Um, so um, what about... What are your thoughts on, like I see a lot of kids where they're making the children look in their eyes all the time and then repeat language, but what I discover is if the child looks away, it's like they can do an either or for a while until you help them put that together. And a lot of the time people don't think that they're talking because they're insisting on the child doing the two sensory things at one time, and if they just let them look away to speak, they'll often speak. So what are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, we've we've actually looked at this ability in autistic children, and we find that commonly they're very strongly modal. That is to say, when they're operating in language or listening, they're basically visually disconnected. And when they're operating in visually, they're substantially uh, 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 orally and, and auditorily disconnected. So one of the things that's unusual about their neurological operations is they're very highly focused in their attention to a domain. And that what they, one thing they struggle with is integrating information across domains, right. so if they 're seeing things that are vivid in front of them like it, like an active face, it actually impairs their, can impair their ability or impede their ability to operate as an accurate listener and we 've found that this ability this uh, this disconnection can be overcome by forms of training, and it 's actually one of the things that we 're most excited about is that is uh, are studies in which we've tried to train children to integrate what they see with what they hear, so they no longer have this these uh confounds this frustration and uh but but this is commonly a problem in 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 the sense that as soon as they see things in a, of a vivid nature, it captivates them and it basically dis disables them from the point of view of the accurate, their accurate right. listening and vice versa.
0: Right, and then you know, and unfortunately, we're st- sending them to training programs that are discounting their language if they're not looking at the same time, and so then they're not even getting the right. education and the change that would happen by being responded to.
1: Well, one of the things that we tend to do is we tend to try to uh, to uh, we tend to try to put them in. We t- we t- we imagine how they are operating without an understanding of how they're operating neurologically, and we tend to put them in a box because because of that. And again, we're really limiting their ability to tell us what they know and limiting their ability to, to operate in, in, because they are operating in some, on some level in a successful way to, to get by in the world. Right. And commonly we frustrate that because we think they should be just like us.
0: I know, I know, and that's how we'll know they're all better. Okay, okay, we have to say goodbye. Oh, my God, now you know why I didn't get another guest on today, people. This is Dr. Uh, Michael Merzenich. Um, he's just written the book, Soft Wired. There are four available. I'm keeping one. Um, and I really, really, really advise you, if you want to change your life, if you're thinking New Year's Eve, I'm going to have a brand new life, this would be the what you need to get there. Or maybe my new book, The WingMaker, will give you the inspiration and his will give you the info. <laughs> I had to work myself in there. Um, because, you know, it's great for the holidays, too. So, Michael, any last words? Oh my gosh, you're amazing. And thank you so much for letting me be groupy all over you here. Um, well, beyond that, words? it's
1: really nice really nice to talk to you and I, I would say that if people are interested in brain training exercises another potential christmas present is to go to brain hq and to look at those exercises and it you know it would be they're useful not just for people that are doing great but for people struggling uh, for example the language related programs we talked about that were designed for children come in another form there that could be applied in someone like your your son and probably at this point he could benefit from them but uh just That's another place for people to look for what's happening in science that relates to brain plasticity and brain health. And, uh, and I think people might be interested in looking at that as well.
0: Yes, I do too. Um, and your website, the way to, to follow you up? Right. What's your
1: website? Uh, you can come to, <laughs> to, uh, to, to software.com or come to positscience.com. In both of those places, there's lots of information about okay. brains and brain health and brain plasticity
0: and positive spelled p o s i t and then just sign.
1: That's right.
0: Right. Okay. Thank you so so much for uh, being on the show today. We really we're really blessed to have had you.
1: It's really nice to talk with you on that, and I wish you every uh, every all encouragement in your own uh, great good works.
0: All right. Thank you so much. Wow. So that was Dr. Michael Merzenich, PhD. He may not you know, he's not he's not like, you know, Brad Pitt, but to me, as in he's not maybe famous to y'all, but he's um he was really instrumental in helping me to understand science without the confusion of the lingo and then to then learn the lingo and put it together. So, um I've really enjoyed you know meeting him over the phone but i also really enjoyed bringing him to your ears because i think that he benefits people when you listen to him he really is easy to follow and if you didn't understand anything he said i apologize (laughs) no i'm taking that i'm editing that out he really is easy to follow um okay so it is time for stories from I'm going to close this on my son's story. I don't know if I've told you this before. But, you know, when you adopt kids, they do come from extreme Mm. problems or you wouldn't be adopting them. And my oldest, who is 32, turning 33, he's engaged now, and he's got a little language because, you know, he's limited in his language because he's hard to understand. His pronunciation is poor. But he's improving all the time. Um, he has a story, and I'm going to share that with you because it really uh, applies to today's show. So when I adopted him, or when I first got him, actually, initially I fostered to adopt and eventually managed to get the right to adopt him, so I fought it in court and all of that. But when I first met him, he had been removed from his home because he was going to be put into an institution and his bed wasn't ready. And they just asked me to take care of him for a few months. Now, I wasn't that person. I, I don't give kids back well, as, as you can tell, because he's still with me. Uh, <laughs> so I said, no, 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 I don't give kids back. I, I'm not a rental. <laughs> I'm a keeper. And, um, and they told me his story. And when they told me his story, I had to open my door. And then I had to keep him. <laughs> so his story... Is that um, his mom, who had many other children, and they were all eventually diagnosed with different things like schizophrenia and different issues. But his mom had, um, she was an alcoholic and, and uh, had some, she was a real tough kind of woman. I did meet her. And she had a different father for each of the children, and she had six in the end. Um, he was the fifth. And when she, broke up with her, or my son, his name is Dar, by the way, my son's uh, dad, when she broke up with him, Dar was about nine months of age. Now, it coincides with a normal time in the brain development of autism for you to see difference, but it also coincided with uh, her breaking up with this man and seeing this man as not as smart enough. Uh, to be her husband or to be her guy. She said he was just too stupid. So we have some confusion here because what she then did was reject Dar, And in the rejecting, she locked him up in a closet for a couple of years. So he spent the first very formative years of his life in a walk-in closet, uh, shut in there um, with a mattress on the floor, and then she, you know, occasionally changed him and threw lots of bottles of milk in. And he heard in the, you know, in the outside of the house, he could hear the sounds of the rest of the family, and he wasn't... A part of it, and the only time, uh, according to the information I have, which could be, you know, incorrect. But according to the information I have, the only time he came out was when a social worker or something was visiting, and then she would bring him out and parade him around a little, and he'd got crazier and crazier and crazier. So when I first got him, we were really mystified as to what was what. You know, by then he's showing signs of ear disturbance. We're thinking feral child. We're thinking um, completely in that time it was called uneducatedly retarded and it's a perfectly fine term people get all bent out of shape out of shape over words that, that you know really you should hear the message but anyways so here he is uneducatedly retarded he's um he's been locked up for a couple of years they're thinking that he's not going to change in life so they're putting him in an institution and uh the father was you know definitely challenged the mother who was challenged herself and had all these schizophrenic kids um, thought he was too stupid for her. So when we looked into who the father was, sure enough, he had a very low IQ. So we don't know anything about what to expect from this person. What caused what? What's, you know, there's no knowledge. So the doctors just keep saying, wait, wait and see, wait and see. And I fight for him in court to try to keep him because, you know, I just couldn't see him go into an institution for life. The reason I tell you this story is because I spent a long time saying why. And I love people like Dr. Michael Merzenich who look for the whys, but I love even better that he looked for the how-to-fixes because I never was able to tease out what was what. In my son's brain, I found other things. His occipital lobe was um, barely intact and all misshapen, and it was structurally completely messed up, and he could only see when things were in movement or he was in movement, because he had a particular kind of blindness that eventually was corrected. There were so many things to look at that there was a, a long period where I was just trying to find out why. Why did this happen? What is it? What's the cause? If I find the cause, I can find the solution. You know what? That is true, but it may be also a deflection from doing the work that's in front of you. In my case, that's kind of how it played out. I kept giving him to schools and, and thinking they could help him while I was trying to figure out why so I could really help him. And then when he was at home, I could, and it was awful frustrating. And in the end, stopped caring about why, and started caring about where are we at now. And in that moment, I started finding science, and, you know, I wasn't pointing my finger of blame at, was it the, you know, was it the closet? Nowadays it would be, was it the vaccine? Was it the carpet cleaner? Was it the, yes, we have to care because we don't want to continually contaminate our children, but at the same time. If we're focused on that, we're not focused on helping our child, and we may not find the thing that will help to fix. In my son's case, when I found a combination of how to approach and isolate sounds and be playful and make life joyous and mix that with neurofeedback, he began to move forward instead of backward. So I don't know the answer still, and yet we're making progress. And this is what I want to share with you today. You don't have to know the answer to how it got where it is. But it's great if you do. But you can make a difference today, right now, by just starting where it's at. Learning how to change physiology and psychology and make them a beautiful blend of joyous stretching and learning. And that's where we're at, and I want you to get there, too, because we're looking to a brand new year. What a great thing to start your new year with this new attitude of brain plasticity isn't just a science word. It's a promise to my child. I'm Lynette Louise, your story teacher host. Thank you for being here, because without you, (laughs) I'd just be talking to a dog who's sitting over in the corner being really quiet like a good guy, and now I'm going to go and see if I can help him shape some words. can't hear.